1: I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The lonely guy is over. So I guess let's jump off a bridge.
0: I'm here. I'm never going to leave you. Now, the tender, heartbreaking story of a man doomed to go to bed with his bed. First time lonely guy. He didn't know it.
1: How many in your body?
0: I'm alone. But he was a lonely guy. And he wasn't alone.
1: Marilyn, where are you?
0: Marilyn! They were
1: everywhere. Marilyn, my love! Where are you, boy? He tried his best to meet women. Working women. First National Bank. Uh, hi, Carol Zoll, please. I'm sorry, she's all tied up right now. Pretty women. Do you want to go to dinner? I'm a man.
0: Anything was better than sleeping alone.
1: Oh.
0: Oh. But he was still lonely. So lonely
1: that he wrote about it. And then things began to change. Nothing like some 80s suicide humor, eh, Andy?
0: You know what this movie felt like? It felt Tell like it, it it felt like an early celebration of incel light. <laughs> 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 it was very odd because I, mean, I was like these basically this is like the lonely guy store yeah. i'm like this is totally like <laughs> a light yeah. comedy version of the insanity of incels
1: that's exactly what it is and it's really uncomfortable it makes for a very uncomfortable experience uh because i'm just so out of touch with with that like intentionally out of touch with that entire sort of worldview i struggle with it i struggle with the media representation of it and here i am watching a steve martin depressed comedy about it oh woebegone those are the days <laughs> i uh this this was a dramatic re-ranking for me <laughs> uh, how, how this was your first viewing it was
0: my first viewing of this. Yes, I had okay. not seen it before. I, you know, it's funny. I had heard of it, and I think if I had looked at the poster uh, or the cover, which is terrible, I would continually have said, "Nah, I don't need to watch that one." <laughs> <laughs> Based on the image alone, because it's so yeah. bad.
1: <laughs> Meh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Steve Martin riding a bike with his dog and a girl pretending to chase him. I don't know.
1: Yeah. What is that? She is clearly about to pivot in a different direction. That is, that's what we're about to see. Um, I feel like, you know, I, I was talking to some folks about this movie before I watched it again and I was trying to explain it and I was explaining it in uh, thus that this was the mid eighties. And this is when Steve Martin kind of figured out who he was and it was I felt pretty good going into the movie because my memory of it was that this was his kind of sad sack entree to sad sack comedy where he is the guy who's sort of inflicted upon and he's super charming and you, you, the the peak of this sort of, of sad sack comedy is for, for my money, Father of the Bride uh, where he's just inflicted upon everybody is doing it he's just trying to get through the process. It's hard and he's just trying to get through the process and it's funny and some of it's awkward, but, and there are people who make fun of him and that's kind of what the lonely guy is. It was his first chance to do that. And my memory of it was very positive. And uh, I, I, uh, this was the longest movie experience i've had in recent memory and i just watched the irishman uh this movie took forever to get through uh because i just it it was uncomfortable and just not not that kind of sweet sad sack humor that i remembered it just every joke was flat for me
0: i i think my reaction to it was a little better than yours but I I feel like it was because it had been tempered by having heard from people about exactly what you just described. And having heard that, I'm like, okay, I, I know going into this, it's going to be that. And I ended up, from my reaction, finding a, finding a little more humor in it. And I still have a lot of issues with it, and I don't think it's necessarily a film I would return to. But I think there were some interesting ideas and some interesting moments and stuff that, that uh, I don't know if saying that they worked is the right thing. But I think that they were uh, interesting experiments, <laughs> I guess we'll just say.
1: Here's a silver lining. Here's a silver lining that we don't have to change our very first topic. And that is Will the next Steve Martin movie we watch involve a guy looking for sex? Check that box. Steve Martin is still looking to have sex. <laughs> five out of five so far. <laughs> Holy God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, but he's, he is weirdly, um, Less offensive in the in the hunting
0: than he is in other movies. I think so because I mean he starts in a relationship that's not working, yeah. and that's weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and then he kind of is in a place where he's just he's he's on the hunt, but not in a pervy sort of way. He's he's on yes. the hunt in a way that's like, you know, I was just uh, you know I, I've I'm a broken hearted lonely person now. And uh, he's not quite ready for the dating scene, but still, he's kind of looking. You know, so it's it's not like just a a pervy college sort of attitude. It's I think there's a little more meat to what he's looking for now.
1: He's a, he is, and and he starts out, you know, I think authentic to who he becomes. Right? He's he starts out in this sort of fantasy uh, experience where he's this greeting card writer, and he just discovers the uh landmark pivot for the industry let's make greeting cards for pets (laughs) and uh and and the the good lord the voiceover andy it's still here and um we he's telling the story of um you know how great he is only to get home and discover that uh in in fact his girlfriend, live-in girlfriend is, or he's the live-in boyfriend in her apartment, is already in bed with a dancer named Juan, and he just climbs into bed with the two of them and have a very awkward conversation. Is this, if you take the first 15 minutes of this movie as a mile marker for Steve Martin in his career, is this a satisfying way uh, to sort of encapsulate his his career so far? for you definitely not the first
0: 15 minutes no this is not a film
1: it gets better
0: (laughs) this is not a film that starts well no it's it's a rough start for this film I, i i i think that the reason that there are moments of this film that ended up working for me is largely because i do end up liking some of the relationship that he ends up forming uh, mm-hmm. Later in the film, well, a couple relationships. I like Charles Grodin. I think he's a great guy, and he's a guy that plays a sad sack really well. I don't think that's a. I don't know if that's a compliment or what, but it's true. And I uh, and then Judith Ivy as Iris. I I think that there's an interesting relationship that they end up having. I kind of enjoy. So I I do like those relationships, and I think it. I end up finding it easier to tolerate some of this kind of nonsense that we have in the film and the way that the comedy plays because I end up liking some of the characters a little more in the relationships that they have.
1: This, I think, is the central challenge of the film, Andy, and that's why I open up with these first fifteen minutes because I think it sets the bar for the expectation of the movie. And then everyone that comes into his life after the the um, the opening of the movie is a uh, more interesting character for me here. And I, and I think that that may go credit to Neil Simon, maybe to Arthur Hiller, um, but these sort of participant characters, these B characters uh, are, uh, you know, Charles Grodin, for me, is a better sad sack than Steve Martin, right? He is funnier. He is more believable in the role uh, and uh, far more intriguing. Every time he leaves the room with a fern, I am interested to follow him and see where he goes. And so uh, I find it sort of frustrating that, oh, I'm going to hang out with (laughs) <laughs> Steve Martin's more okay. That's fine. That's fine. Let's see where it goes. Uh, and same thing with the relationships. And I think this this is a, a, a maybe a separate conversation when you look at these relationships. But the the chase, right? The the sort of sliding doors, missed opportunities angle, where he he's continuously losing her number is that a rewarding chase or would you rather just see you know learn more about her and her five ex-husbands like she she's i think judith ivy is also fantastic uh, and and funny um it it is to to my eye uh the movie breaks down because of all of their relationships with our protagonist. And I don't know if that's a problem of this sort of lightweight book, the the Lonely Guys, whatever Lonely Guys Guide to Life or or whatever they call it, uh, Lonely Guys Book of Life by Bruce J. Friedman, uh, or if it's uh, you know uh, suffering through the adaptation process or just rushing to get it produced. Whatever the case, it, it's it's actually Martin in this movie that makes it worse.
0: Interesting, ah.
1: interesting. I didn't feel that. I I kind of uh, yeah. I
0: don't know. I liked some of the elements of him with these people. Like, I loved the stuff with him constantly losing Iris's phone number. I liked the way that that played out. And uh, I, it worked for me yeah. watching him hang out with Grodin or hang out by himself and trying to adapt to this lonely guy lifestyle where you have to go shop in the lonely guy store and buy things. Yeah. So it, it, it was like absurd comedy in a way where... Sometimes it worked. And I, I could, I don't know, the fact that Neil Simon is did the adaptation, I, I was a little confused because there was an adaptation by Neil Simon of Bruce J. Friedman's book, and mm-hmm. then Ed Weinberger and Stan Daniels wrote the screenplay of the adaptation, I guess. Right. I'm not exactly right. sure how that works. Because it feels like the adaptation would have been the screenplay, but maybe it's because this book is one of those books that's like uh, the, whatever it is, the Iris book that adaptation was adapted from. That really yes, isn't right, right. a narrative piece, but is more just like, if you're lonely, try this. You know, and maybe that's how the book is. Neil Simon took that, adapted it into an actual story about a lonely guy, and then these guys wrote the screenplay. That's my best guess, because I, I, I've tried finding some information about the book, but haven't been able to find much.
1: It is a this rags to riches story that comes out of it. Right. This this story of this guy who, you know, has no relationship and he is oh Cinderella without a, a prince sort of a thing. And then he gets famous and has lots of meaningless relationships uh sort of one after the other and he makes some money and he's he's uh, suddenly a popular guy but it turns out that his uh, you know it was the original relationship that was going to be the best one and it, the money doesn't matter and she's got her own fair share of anxieties and frustrations and fears and i i do like the premise of their relationship and i love that they made her not not weak but goofy um to to sort of match his patterns of goofiness and, and actually make it so that he can fill um, uh, sort of fill a role in her life, right? That she's, I mean, she comes with this bucket load of divorces and, um, you know, she's, she's afraid to go to the bathroom by herself in a restaurant because she's, that's how one of her husbands leaves (laughs) her, uh, when she turns her back, he's gone. So they end up going into the bathroom together. Like it, there are some really cute moments. And, um, so I, I think this one, like the last one is, is a movie that I'm, I, I, well, I I should say like a lot of the movies in these Steve, the Steve Martin series so far, they're movies I'm kind of rooting for. Uh, that uh, that I want some some more substance uh, to it, but but I, I still I still struggle, I still struggle well, even with Lonnie yeah. Anderson, even with Lonnie Anderson, even with Merv Griffin again, even with or, Merv Griffin or right, Doctor Joyce right. Brothers. Oh, what Andy. Okay, since you brought you brought up Joyce Brothers, is that the ultimate dated punchline? <laughs> It worked.
0: It is dated, definitely. I mean, this is one of those films that is taking very current elements and putting them into a film. And if you don't know who Dr. Joyce Brothers is, I mean, yeah, I don't know. To a certain extent, it doesn't matter because you meet her on a TV show. She's one of the guests on the show, on the couch with him. And then we see her, so you know she's somebody famous, even if you don't know who she is. And then at the very end, you see that now Charles Grodin is with her. So I guess it it could still play to a certain extent, but it works so much better when you know who she
1: is. It it does, and and I think it was even maybe uh, I don't know. It, it, was it dated for for nineteen eighty for 70, me yeah. in eighty four? Uh, I didn't see it in 84, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, I just wonder by the time I saw it, I was like, I, you know, was I thinking about who Joyce, probably, I probably knew exactly who who Joyce brothers was, but she's, she is an amazing person, right? As a psychologist and an advice columnist. I mean, she was, she has, has been a, a personality for a long time. Uh, And in this is an interesting little bit of trivia that I did not know in 1955, Dr. Joyce brothers uh, became the only woman to win the top prize on the American game show the sixty four thousand dollar question answering questions on the topic of boxing, which was suggested as a wow. stunt by the show's producers <laughs> uh, so really? yeah, yeah, so you go joyce brothers like that's that is fantastic um so i'm you know she passed away in two thousand thirteen so i I just felt like at the end when Groden ends up with with Joyce brothers, it is. Uh, it, it's a tough joke to end the movie on because it, she is such she's such a specific personality, has such a specific sort of celebrity to that to a, to a field. And I don't think the joke was set up uh, that well on the TV show um, on with Merv. I, I just don't think it was it was set up enough or meaningful enough to make for a great joke at the end. And so that, that's where I struck.
0: I'll tell you where it made for a great joke. When you okay. see him in, on the show with the uh, the twins,
1: yeah, the Schneider, the Schneider, twins,
0: Schneider twins and uh, Joyce brothers, and then it cuts to him in bed and you see him with one of the twins and it pulls out and you see him with both of the twins
1: and it pulls out and you see him with and you both see her. of the twins and <laughs> Joyce brothers you know what and you are right that is the the payoff of the joke you're right i get it and and in fact i think i am i have been corrected now because in fact groden ending, ending up with her is not the payoff of the introduction of her on the show it's the payoff of her being in bed with the twins and <laughs> right. and larry Right, that's the that's the setup for the joke at the end. I okay. I have been convinced, Andy. Well done. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud. I
0: like that was just a great and it was so easy. It was such an easy comedy yeah, beat, but they pulled right. it off so beautifully. I had a good old chuckle with that one.
1: Uh how hard were you laughing? And I mean laughing out loud at the old suicide bridge. Watching the bodies <laughs> fall in front of the camera. <laughs> is this is this hit home oh i you know I don't know it's
0: it's a really awkward thing to kind of use as a as a comedy uh kind of area for this this whole well several parts of the film every time somebody's depressed, one of these lonely guys they all go here. It's weird there's the rooftops where they all go and call out to their lost loves. And then there's the bridge where they get really depressed, always <laughs> right? when it's foggy, so they can throw themselves off it into the waters below. yeah it's a yeah, it's a tricky thing to make funny, sadly. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that kind of worked for me because it ties into the loneliness, and uh you know I, unfortunately, people go dark places when they get really lonely, so i I don't know, I didn't hate it, but it was awkward.
1: The the gallows humor bit, I think, is you know it it's fine. Um, I I struggle with it because I think uh, I just didn't find it that funny, and I think that's just that like this that joke wasn't made for me and who I am right now. I I think you know seeing this the first time in the eighties nineties whenever I probably laughed a lot. Yeah, I I was that I was the guy who thought that was funny. I I don't uh, I, I didn't. Didn't well, really it's, it, now, it
0: so. is, it's one of those things. It depends on your mind, your, kind of your frame of, of uh, mind. It, it, can, it depends on what's going on in your life. I mean, it depends on a lot of things to find stuff like that humorous. And yeah. it's, it's a rougher thing. It's a tricky thing to make work well. And it's, you know, a, a little torn. Uh, obviously, I think it was probably rougher for most people.
1: I I think it was I think Groden actually sets it up pretty well and and the way he sort of laments how he's oh I'm up here I'm down there so I, I go back and forth. Yeah. He sells it comedically and I think he has a unique gift for selling something quite so gallows in a way that allows all of us to or or many of us to approach it humorously. Um it, it gets a little bit overkill for me at the end, frankly, where I can still laugh at it in the beginning, but by the end, when the bodies are like really just sort of plummeting right in front of the camera, it's, it's less, it's less funny. And it's more just like you've, you've sold, you've oversold the gag. Yeah. Um, so
0: yeah. just yeah. as a, uh, a side note returning to the lonely guy's book of life, the book I did find mm-hmm. online the, uh, information about this book. So, um, Let me share that with you. Oh, please do. If you're a lonely guy, says author Bruce J. Friedman, take heart. There are millions of people just like you out there. Unfortunately, your chances of meeting any of the really attractive ones are slim. The Lonely Guy's Book of Life is Friedman's classic manual on handling undesired solitude. Some of his tips and remember, a woman also can be a lonely guy. Your Apartment. The worst view you can have is of a bridge, particularly a lost horizon type that's obscured in fog at the far end. In no time at all, the lonely guy will start thinking of it as a metaphor for his life, stretching off into nowhere. Plants. Buy a lot of them. Scattered about, they will cover up the fact that you don't have enough furniture and aren't knowledgeable about room dividers. A drawback is that each day you will see little buds and shoots, life perpetuating itself while yours may very well not be. Cooking. Forget about measuring things. Just tear off hunks of things and toss them in. Lonely guys are too upset to be dealing with one and a half teaspoons of nutmeg, which they won't have around anyway. Dating. An effective strategy is to schedule periodontal work on a Friday afternoon. This will keep you desperately uncomfortable until late Saturday night. At that point, you can say to yourself, no sense calling anyone now. I might as well get the Sunday papers and pack it in. Simple as that. You'll be out of the woods and you'll have... Tough gums, too. Friedman's experiences after the Book of Life was published in 1978 would bring hope to any lonely guy. I was living alone when I wrote it, and I feel the pain, he, he says. I guess that's not on the back. This is just an extra little quote. But, but the okay. second I finished it, literally, I went out and met my current wife. Now I'm here with a new wife, with a new baby, two dogs, two cats, and God knows who uh, what else, and I crave a little loneliness. There you go.
1: Huh. Weird. That's a, That was a weird turn at the end.
0: Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: God, I wish Unquote. I, yeah, that everything I wanted, I, it turns out I didn't. I need a fern. Hey, I have a little, right? I have a little follow up too, which, and this is more about Joyce Brothers because turns out Joyce Brothers, uh-huh. what? So I'm sitting here. I just read to you that thing about the $64,000 question. Yeah. $64,000 question. Andy, does that ring any sort of bell to you? The $64,000 question,
0: should it repel to me? I don't know. Why?
1: It was, Andy, a quiz show. And it was right. only a few years later that Charles Van Doren showed up on the quiz show 21 and uh, there were all the claims about the quiz shows being rigged and brothers mm-hmm. was uh, all tied up in that swearing up and down that she had not cheated or been given any answers. Uh, and I was just checking to see if she was actually represented in the movie quiz show, which was a fantastic movie. I can't believe we, that hasn't surfaced in our catalog yet. She was not. Don't worry about it. But wow, we need to do quiz show. We see, do. How, see what I did there. Yeah, I came so, right back around. All right. Yeah.
0: You know, I will just say, Dr. Joyce Brothers, she was in movies from 72 through 2002 as herself like uh, almost yeah. always as herself so so even if you didn't recognize her from the film you may have recognized her from many of her other many other movies cameos. clearly <laughs> right. she right. had fun being in films and tv projects and a lot of them were kind of the goofier sorts of things like the naked gun like true beverly hills married with children loaded weapon spy hard <laughs>
1: She became like the slapstick punchline because of her career and her what the kinds of stuff she wrote about, like she was sort of the default slapstick punchline. I'll bet you could have made any sort of body joke at a party and the punchline could have been Dr. Joyce Brothers did. And it would have been funny (laughs) uh, to to 90 percent of the people there. Um, So anyhow, she's she's got a long and storied career. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And and don't forget her hit book, What Every Woman Should Know About Men. Uh so uh there you go. Lonnie Anderson. She pops uh, also, up in here too. Also had a storied career. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And
0: that was a funny bit to have her pop up. Yes. Yeah.
1: That worked. You see, there are things yeah. in here that do work. Th- totally. Yeah. Absolutely. I. You know, you're right. I agree. And and so and and again, I think I stand by my premise that uh, there are many things in here that do work. And the challenge for me in almost all of them is is Steve Martin, even though I would say in the defense of Steve Martin that his he is you can tell he's on the journey to the everyman kind of sad sack comedy genius that I feel like he ends up being. And I I do like that effort. Right. It's much less of a character piece than the movies that we've seen very recently. Right. It's much less of a. Yeah. Of a like him taking on. Uh, well, you know, this when you say sort a character piece,
0: you mean like playing a big, broad character exactly not a character piece yeah. like exploration of a human being character piece
1: absolutely yeah. true i mean more of a yeah more of a, a stereotype yeah kind of he's, he's putting on a big role and uh even the big comedic role like the jerk like we don't we don't have him doing that i feel like we get to see through and maybe get a sense of who he is uh and and a sense of his his range and and so that that's a very positive thing it's a very positive thing to that's give a good him more point because that room. this this
0: really is the first chance we get of seeing him playing in a comedy where it's just a very straight character that yeah. he's playing. So that is a nice. So, so, I mean, to that point, all of the films that we have seen Steve Martin kind of in so far early in his career, each are doing something a little different. And so it, it's uh, it's clear that he is taking a, a pretty measured path as far as what he's choosing so that he can do a variety of different things yeah. in each of the films.
1: Right, right. This is the first one where we don't get an affectation. Yeah. Um and and in this case the film the the affectation role is actually played by, you know, Charles Grodin. He gets the kind of uh the big broad thing even if he's playing kind of a, you know, whipped introvert yeah. sort of uh, uh character. So I I actually think I think that's that's very positive. That's a good thing. What did you think about the dog? My uh kids came in and sat down at that bit at the you know when he's he's on a boat, uh, what should we just say as a parenthetical how crazy is it that all of our central characters end up on a cruise at the same <laughs> time on the same boat it's
0: it's a broad absurd comedy of course yeah it's yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. fine
1: it's fine it, it's it's all fine, but also a dog, and so I think the dog bit was funny I think that that the uh the steward or whoever it was who brought the the um Uh, The dog around saying, hey, this dog came on with this note attached to it and uh, (laughs) and a stick in his mouth. Right. And, you know, when you see the stick, something's going to happen to the stick and. Boy, did my kids yell at the TV when he throws a <laughs> stick and the dog jumps off and there is no effort to rescue the dog. Knowing what kind of movie this is, you could sort of read the tea leaves that something's going to happen with the dog later. That will pay off. But it was very frustrating for uh, the younger viewers who did yeah. not catch that. Yeah, you you, um, you
0: need to. Yeah, it's one of those ones where it, it's it works because you the yes. way that they've built the relationship
1: with the dog. The stick is the Joyce brothers of the dog gag. (laughs) If you'd seen all 70 other movies that she was in, all of the stick dog (laughs) jokes, they would make more sense. Um, So I actually thought the dog was funny. I thought that was a a, a fun bit of dopey slapstick that worked for me. You agree? I It was. Yeah, it
0: very much was. And you know there were bits like the Jimmy Carter gag that you know I don't think it worked quite as well but still it was kind of funny that he's one of the guys who's in the crowd because he's yes. a lonely guy.
1: That is a that that ended up being an interesting and I think I an uh, ultimately out of touch political statement in that bit of humor. I don't know what I I think what they were they were making a gag about you know his his presidency, right? You don't put him in there um without you know having that that sort of sense we're going to have fun with this kind of dopey guy because he he so fit the the mantle um but now yeah, watching this this, point, thing, this is
0: like what knee deep in the yes, first of Reagan's presidency
1: I- exactly right and and now what we have learned watching this movie uh decades later is that Jimmy Carter has had an ex extraordinary and storied career uh, and he is an ex- an incredible humanitarian like his he has actually uh, f- you know n- lived up to um, you know far more than his the cloth of his presidency ever did uh, yeah, and, right. and the challenges that he had at office and so I found that really funny like oh that's that's a joke that didn't land uh, <laughs> thanks to the annals of history so
0: right 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 but you can appreciate uh, it for the time because clearly totally, there were thoughts totally. about yes. Jimmy Carter and his presidency back then.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And we're making, you know, that's the the equivalent of us making I I would say probably what Clinton jokes uh at this point. Um and and writing, you know, uh Clinton Oval Office jokes and Oh, I think it, it would if it was that recent, it would be Obama jokes. Well, you think that you think Obama is would be ours? Well, I'm just saying if timing wise,
0: are you because, I mean, you know, Carter was president right before Reagan, and this was the, you know, 84. So it's it's mm-hmm. just the president right
1: before. Uh, I, I'm just saying that, like, I think you You're just I saying Obama's Carter, not funny. No, Obama's hysterical, man. <laughs> Don't you go there. That dude can joke. He knows how to drop a mic. He, he knows how to drop a mic. Uh, but I'm just saying, in terms of our generational connection to a president that we make fun of, I think for us as Gen Xers, that is Clinton. And I, there are and, and I would say I would probably Bush Neil also. Simon and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Bush is easy money. <laughs> <laughs> There's a
0: whole movie about how I, easy it is to make fun of him.
1: And and I really look forward to um to the movies that the, the, the stone cold slapstick comedies to come from the millennials. If if anyone is capable of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Please rescue us. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, that's Carter. Where 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 do you go from Carter? I have a strange little uh, rabbit hole that I went down. Oh,
0: tell film. me. Well, because he calls, he calls the number, and it is a is it's a phone number with a letter in it still. And yeah. I was like, "Well, that's weird. This is the '80s. I thought that was done with." And so I started kind of doing some digging about old phone numbers and letters and everything, trying to figure out, you know, what the heck. And from what I can tell is... That the practice should have ended, according to everything that I've read, is it pretty much ended in the '60s to have letters in your phone numbers. Uh, yeah. So, so nobody would have been doing that still. But I also did find, which was an odd thing to discover. There were people who were very resistant to changing phone numbers because they loved the literary charm of the old telephone yeah. exchange names. And there were groups like the Anti-Digit Dialing League and the Committee of 10 Million to Oppose All-Number Calling. What? <laughs> they, these groups formed just to protest the switch to all number calls. Wow. Isn't that strange that there were people who were just so adamant about it? I guess it's not because that's the nature of people uh, to be so attached to something that they won't (laughs) let it go. And so, you know, if the Internet was around, we would all have been seeing posts about this over and over about I'm not letting go of my my letters in my phone number. Wow. Did you did you belong or did your parents belong to the committee of 10 million to oppose all number Uh dialing?
1: They did not. No, my <laughs> parents. Are you kidding? My dad had like the first briefcase cell phone, like mobile phone. He was <laughs> always uh, on the cut. Like if he would have, he he was a cord cutter before there were cords to cut. He was he was so into it, and so I never had that. I I remember, you know the yeah, um, you know Murray Hill five nine nine seven five. Like right, right. I just remember it. I remember it from from TV shows. I I. You know, I know that it has to do with these exchanges that have limits to the number of subscribers that they can have in any particular geographic region. I don't I I know that it has to do with mnemonics, like what the what the letters and words end up being. I I don't know the history of of dialing well enough to to say it. it is quaint. Um, And I think it's really funny that they still have it. And not only do they still have it, I think they still had it. It was like there are some bumper stickers, right, that that go by. I feel like I noticed bumper stickers that actually had numbers on them that were like old numbers that hadn't been peeled off. I thought that was actually a nice touch. Uh,
0: I I movie. was just really perplexed by it in this film, trying yeah. to figure out, are they doing this as a way to say... Let's, you know, let's look back at earlier times. Mm-hmm. You know, what was the point of doing this if nobody was using these phone numbers anymore? Or just, you know, people who are set in their ways, perhaps? Uh, you know, I don't know. It was just strange yeah. to me that that, that actually uh, was something that they used in this film. That yeah, seems to take place present day. You know, there's nothing in this that says, you know, this film takes place in
1: 1960. Uh Okay, Andy, let's talk about Arthur Hiller, can we? Good old Arthur Hiller. Yes, we can. When I talked to you, when I said, this is an Arthur Hiller movie, we should be excited about that, you, I think, said, wait, have we done Arthur Hiller? <laughs> yes, we have, we discovered. <laughs> it we, It was that, though, it was that initial response to a guy who has, nay, an encyclopedic uh, understanding of directors and their works, uh, and who is the definition of auteur theory himself. That, hilarity. Right, that you would it be hilarity. You, <laughs> <laughs> oh, make a note uh, that that you would. Plus, he's Canadian and we just finished our Cronenberg thing. So there's that connection. Like it feels to me like we should have more of an institutional, a next real institutional memory of Arthur Hiller. And yet <laughs> we we did. We did not. We have talked about uh, the hospital mm-hmm. for sure, definitely. Uh, we, which which we uh, which we liked. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, actually. I think we have. Don't we have another coming up in our first uh, first half of next year? We do. Uh, yeah, we have, we're going to be looking at Silver Streak. Silver Streak on yeah. the list. Yeah, so, yeah. so what do you think of of uh, Arthur Hiller as this uh, as the director here? Seventy five credits to his name. Here. Yeah, he's got he's got some good credits.
0: Uh, you know, a, an interesting mix of films, a variety, and certainly. uh, somebody who has not shied away from comedy you know i i think of the comedy films that he's done i can look early to like the out-of-towners that he did uh, with uh with uh, jack lemon which was great i loved that movie or even love story a very kind of uh very melodramatic heavy a romantic drama that uh, was a mm-hmm. little much, but, you know, I think he handled it well. And looking at stuff later in his career, like shortly after this, Outrageous Fortune, which I loved at the time, See No mm-hmm. Evil, Hear No e- Evil, I also loved at the time. Um And then stuff like uh The Babe that he did a few years later. Um Did I tell you I snuck onto the set for that <laughs> when they were filming in Chicago? Not. I did, actually. Um. I I wasn't. It wasn't intentionally sneaking onto the set. I was a young uh, high school kid, and uh, I was wandering, and I was trying to see what was going on. And yes, I did end up on the set of the Babe a bedroom scene, actually. Before, did you like so many of us?
1: Did you find Kelly McGillis?
0: I did not. I did not. I did not. But Mm. that's. But she's who triggered me for it. So I knew what was going on. I said, Kelly McGillis, they're making a movie right here. (laughs) One would do that when one sees Kelly McGillis walk by.
1: Yes. Yes. That
0: is absolutely true. Yes, indeed. Anyway, completely uh, uh, random (laughs) uh, little direction there. Arthur Hiller. Yes. I think that he's an interesting guy. Uh, I think that he's done a variety of films that don't stand out to me as a guy who I would say um, he is... Very much an auteur because everything that he has done has a very definitive hilarity stamp. I wouldn't necessarily say that, um, but I do. I, I don't know. I, I think that he is a pretty uh, straightforward filmmaker and and tells his stories with uh, in the way that they need to be told.
1: I I my sense is what we saw on screen is what was on the page. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just get the feeling that he he had a very strong sense. And and I don't I don't know this, but I I feel like I've seen some other movies of his author, author, um, obviously the hospital like they they all seem like pragmatic approaches to. The text. I would be curious to see uh, the the um, you know what those who worked with him say about him and his approach to the work because it just feels like he is a he's just got a strong uh, m- muscle to to put like just straight stories on the screen. He's a utility sort of director, and yeah. I I like the movies that he's done. Um, uh, and in as this movie tells kind of a wonky story. Um, and and i have some challenges with our protagonist i i don't necessarily have a problem with the direction um it's you know i think he gets the beats insofar as they're beats that i find funny he gets them right you know i mean he's i it's i i think he's he does funny stuff and yeah, you know I mean, the hospital that was a riot
0: it was definitely a satire for sure <laughs> Well, I I think that he does have a handle on comedy, and uh, it's just tricky. And I don't know if it's just working with Neil Simon or or an adaptation thereof, or if it's uh, just—or what it is. But I I feel like some of the comedy that he does here hits pretty well, and I feel like the tone is right. But then there is other comedy that I'm like, I don't feel like it was— quite as uh, as uh on the ball like i i felt like it was an it was a the tone was often felt like it should be a lot more absurdist than it was like sometimes it felt pretty straight and just not too uh not too different but there's so many things like the lonely guy store and the jokes with the dog and uh, like there's a lot of things that i'm like I, I okay i feel like we could have just kept that absurdity up the whole time, and it would yeah. have been a much stronger film.
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, he's, his background was in, originally it was in psychology at University of Toronto and then law at University of British Columbia. He went into communications, got a job at, at CBC in, in Toronto, and his start in the film business was directing public affairs programs. Uh, now, if there is any form of media that is more straight from the page uh, Than public affairs programming, I don't know what it is. So there are certain muscles that you develop that <laughs> it, it maybe take a while to shake loose. Uh, and so, um, you know, yeah. I, I totally, I totally get your point, and that's um, that that may be as a result of the muscles that he's exercising. That's possible. And now we've already talked a little bit about the uh, the Weinberger, Daniels, Simon conundrum. Mm, I do yes. want to talk just briefly about Neil Simon, though uh, well, I guess we should talk about all these uh, guys they They all have um uh, sort of a storied history in in uh, writing. Um, Ed Weinberger uh, of course, was b- behind the Mary Tyler Moore show. um so you think this um uh, you know the story well, he and, of uh, he and Daniels uh, did taxi. Yeah, right. And Taxi. You'd think these these New York stories or these, I guess, New York and Mary Tyler Moore was at Chicago. Uh, Uh, Anyway, these big city stories, um, you know, they they absolutely have a sense of absurdity that you're talking about that um, that that I think we're wanting more from in this movie. Like these are guys who write about the absurdity of big city living.
0: And I did. That was a note of mine. I'm like, it feels like there are a lot of in jokes for people in New York City. Uh, you know, I, I felt like through the whole thing, just so many things were pointed out and I couldn't help but feel like the writers really lived there to a point where some of these jokes just only those sorts of people are going to get, which I mm-hmm. think could potentially hurt the film.
1: Neil Simon, uh, we have talked about, uh, I have we talked about more than one Neil Simon? Let's see. This is another one. We talked about Murder by Death. Did we, we talk about The Goodbye Girl? Nope. I think it's and just he, Murder by Death. Just Murder by Death. Yeah. Uh, which is funny and got some uh, racist stuff going on mm-hmm. in there that didn't age as well. <laughs> However... I think Neil Simon is a genuinely funny writer and uh and i think he he also has a sense of that absurdity like you don't you don't become known for writing television for things like the odd couple uh you know without being able to grasp that sense of just over the top absurdity and um and so uh again you know credit to the writers for for tackling this very maybe strange adaptation
0: but uh, yeah but clearly b- at least based on kind of what i could find to read from the lonely guys book of life yeah. i feel like these three guys were able to pull out elements to actually kind of create a story that you know it may not have been as good as it should have been but it still worked and uh, and yeah. i think to that end they found a way to adapt a book that that uh, they, they brought some stuff to the table. So I, I got to give them a little credit. Yeah. No,
1: I, I think so. I, this is a, a challenging piece. What, the way I understand it, Steve Martin is the one who actually uh, acquired the rights to the book. He was the one who went after this. Did you find anything different? Um, I don't, I didn't find that. Huh. So that's interesting. That is from a, uh, a lovely review in the Washington Post uh, from Roger Piantadosi. And he says this is, I think, is a, uh, the way he puts it, I think, is, is worth at least reading. Maybe Steve Martin knew his fans were gaining fast on him in the gray hair department. <laughs> no, let's go back to the jerk anyway. Uh, or that wild and crazy would eventually make the paying customers a little sick and tired. Maybe that's why, not too long ago, he jumped at the rights to Bruce J. Friedman's quickie book, The Lonely Guy's Guide to Life, seeing a chance to shed the wild and crazy act for something more now, more 80s. Something, for instance, you could call mild and lonely. Uh, Not a bad idea, and The Lonely Guy is an amusingly bleak and fitfully charming result. Fitfully charming. Uh, Fitfully charming. Yeah. Uh, which, which I think is, it, you know, is overall a very positive review. And the reviews tend to be, I think, down the middle for this thing. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that that could be just complete editorial. Uh, I, I don't know. That's the only thing I I found on getting the thing uh, made.
0: I, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find much. This is one of those movies where there's not a lot of stuff that is out there as far as kind of the process of getting it made. So I was yeah. uh, curious about some of it. I wasn't sure uh, what was out there didn't find much i did find that andy garcia pops up in this film as an uncredited uh actor possibly extra somewhere
1: watch the lonely guy for andy garcia uh in the last couple of movies uh, you know the man with two brains um i I think dead men don't wear plaid which had its own challenges we had some camera and editorial issues um and uh, particularly in The Man with Two Brains. Uh this one camera, Victor J. Kemper, uh editing uh Roger Gosnell and William Reynolds. This was uh workmanlike practical camera and editing.
0: It was. Like nothing stood out to me when we were in the fog. It just felt like kind of ugliish fog. Nothing felt too yeah. great there. Um the, the editing worked. I mean it it all worked. I, nothing stood out though. Nothing, that was, to remember, nothing to that was jarring. The last nothing movie, that was jarring. Nothing that was overly exciting. Yeah, the thing right. that did excite right. me was Jerry Goldsmith, one of my ten Js of film composing. I love his music here. I uh, interestingly like a track came on some other album I have where it's just called the Lonely Guy Suite, and so I recognized a lot of the themes, but just because I have that one suite of music from this, and I love it. I love the themes from this. this is a great Jerry Goldsmith, as always, does a wonderful job.
1: I think so, too. What was so funny, though, is that the, the score seems very 80s. Like, it just struck me as super 80s in, in a way that um, uh, it, it's. I, I enjoy it. Like, that's not a critique. It just felt like of a time in a way that some composers don't to me. Well, uh, and
0: yeah, Goldsmith certainly has some 80s scores that feel very 80s, even if it's not specifically like 80s instruments or 80s kind of.
1: Right. Uh, kind of right. That
0: sounds, but they still feel that way. So I'm, I'm not surprised. Yeah, they do. Yeah.
1: I do have one um, as one. I don't know. We're going to call this uh, a fact, a real time fact checking, a correction. Andy, as far as I can tell, the uh, medical community has determined that you cannot have orgasm after orgasm by sneezing. Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got to tell you, I didn't know where you were going to go with that joke and that setup. I didn't know where you're going to go. You didn't let me down, Andy. You did not let me down. Speak for yourself. Oh, that's right. Yes. We need to put that on a shirt in turn on that. <laughs> what, did, what did you find? You wanted to share something. No,
0: I didn't actually about that. I assumed oh. you were going somewhere else. I had a note that wasn't about that, but I appreciate you bringing that up. Good. Anyway.
1: No, let's pivot. Yeah, please. <laughs> like, Get please. me out
0: of this. Switch. Um, <laughs> I didn't know this, but Steve Martin is uh, an actual runner in real life. And for the running scene that we have toward the end of the film, as he's running all over the city because the the traffic is all tied up, uh, he actually runs across the 59th Street Bridge over to Queens. And it was all filmed on location. Uh, he starts on the Manhattan side of the bridge, runs mid lane uh, to the Queensboro Plaza, um, branches out toward Astoria. He runs under the L. Uh, up thirty first Street ends up with the cop who uh, uh, at the corner of thirty first and Newton Avenue goes up to twenty eighth Avenue and thirty first, and all of this they they did shoot it out of uh, sequence a little bit, but he does all of the running himself, which I think is fantastic.
1: That is all a, leading that's to a funny bit: breaking
0: yeah. into the wrong wedding and having a great moment there.
1: Also a funny bit. I wonder how uh, I, I wonder how hard it was to actually shoot that for for Steve Martin at that point in his career. Uh, I would imagine
0: it was difficult, but it's yeah. not like New York. Uh, you know, it's not like the first time they've closed their streets down uh, for yeah, movies. Exactly, to film.
1: exactly. Uh, okay, how'd it do at the box office? What'd you find?
0: Well, unfortunately, I could not find any information for the budget of Hiller's first film with Martin. The only thing I did find relating to the budget was that the film was a bomb at the box office, which tells me the earnings came in far under what it cost to make. The movie did open January 27, 1984, opposite Woody Allen's Broadway Danny Rose and Gregory Nava's El Norte, plus the genre film Slayground. Even with a January window, the movie could not crack the top five for the weekend and ended up only making $5.7 million at the box office, or $14 million in today's dollars. Without the budget, I can't figure out what the profits were, so we will just have to take people's word for it that it was a flop.
1: Well, that's unfortunate mostly for your spreadsheet, which I know does not suffer holes easily. Uh, no, uh, but at least it will not be sitting lonely
0: because it's not the only one to have suffered yeah. that fate.
1: Well, you know, it was a tough rewatch for me. It was a movie that I I wanted to stand up to my memory, but my memory, I'm getting used to it, not being a, a great servant in terms of <laughs> Steve Martin movies. And so, um, you know, insofar as I think this had a lot of potential, I was rooting for it, struggled with our protagonist character, but overall, it's got some funny jokes and, and uh, it and some stuff that was dated and didn't land all that well.
0: Yeah. It's it it was one that I enjoyed. I didn't love. I, I think it's one that I find enjoyment in because there are parts that worked really well. I think as the sum, it's I struggle a little more with it.
1: Well, I think on that, uh Andy, let's let's take it to Flick Chart. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com uh, slash the next reel, and you can see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. If you sign up for your own account, you can swipe over in the show notes, tap the word flickchart. It'll take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your own catalog and see how it stands up to ours.
0: First up, The Lonely Guy or Scanners. 100% Scanners.
1: Yeah, Scanners.
0: Man, I, did you remember me telling you I love that movie? <laughs>
1: I do remember that. I str- struggle <laughs> with it, but it's still, I would put oh, it on first.
0: All right. The Lonely Guy or more Cronenberg, Rabbit, Rabid. rabid. I'll, I'll take the Lonely Guy. You will? Yeah, I think so.
1: Okay. You, you, what the hey who, Andy? Let's take it to the mat. Here we go. <laughs> all right, here we go. One, One two, two three. Three. Papers. Sorry. Man, lonely if there is things. ever a time to get a. 2001 re rank. It's now because I am in the hole.
0: <laughs> you are. Yep, you, you are failing. All right. The Lonely Guy or Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke. The Lonely Guy or the Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. The Lonely Guy or Compulsion. Uh, compulsion. Compulsion, indeed. The Lonely Guy or. The host. The host. All about the host. Say, you want. I will say, You'll the, say host, the lonely guy.
1: Yeah. Of course. I will the, say the, the host. lonely guy.
0: Try it again. <laughs> the, the lonely, lonely guy. guy or uh, or Christmas in July. Guy. Yes. Uh Christmas in July. Christmas in July. The lonely guy or uh, another Steve Martin movie, The Jerk. Ooh. Uh The Jerk. I will say The Lonely Guy.
1: Okay, you can have
0: it. Wow. Okay. That's easy. No arm twist in here. Mm. The Lonely Guy or La Femme Nikita? La Femme Nikita. I will say La Femme Nikita. She was also a little lonely. All right. Well, that puts The Lonely Guy in spot 321 on our chart. 321 out of
1: 430 puts it at about 25%. 25%. All right. So when I started out, this was at 244 on my flick chart. Where did it land on yours?
0: It landed in 3690 out of 4254, about a 13%.
1: OK, so we ended Pretty low in, considering yeah. I
0: enjoyed it still.
1: Yeah, we ended in about the right place, which was, uh, uh, you know, for me, 12.74 out of 14.19, which was a 10 percent. Uh, so if I were to go by the algorithm for letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a half star movie, uh, according to the star ranking at FlickChart. That seems a little low for me. Um for it, it really is a middle of the road movie, I think, after our conversation. And so out of five stars, I'm gonna go with two and a half.
0: Two and a half stars. Is there a heart?
1: <sighs> I I feel like I feel okay. like there should okay. be a heart for this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna give it a heart
0: for Charles Groden. I Mwah. considering it's at a 13% for me, it still ended up at a three three and a heart for me. Okay. Three out of five. And I think it's just there were like some jokes that really clicked for me and and some relationships that I really enjoyed, even if the film did have a lot of things that it was uh, just fighting against uh, me on. So where do we go from here, Andy? We are going to be wrapping up our Steve Martin series with his fourth and final collaboration with Carl Reiner, All of Me, which also comes out in 1984. Uh, it's going to be a Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin a comedy. It'll be a nice way to wrap up this series. Memory's pretty strong about this, all of me, Andy. Me too. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to revisiting it and uh, chatting about it next week. I'm really nervous. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
1: Amazon give it handy. does Amazon always do. Oh, it. Amazon, you sometimes you try. You try so hard. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes you nail it and sometimes uh sometimes you struggle and you need to try again. Uh where would you True. where would you like to start?
0: Well, I've got a one star. Like, cuz I went low. Yeah. one star by Hurch. old Hurch. 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 Perch says, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. We'll see. <laughs> we had difficulty with the link. Movie reload several times. <laughs> we need to retry. We needed to reorder it on Saturday.
1: <laughs> there we go. Oh, on Saturday. Oh dear. That's why. Oh, That's why. Saturday is a better day for Amazon. Well, That's I have one that, from Non-Smoker that that uh, dropped way back in 2008 uh who says this is pathetic. This is absolutely the worst movie for Steve Martin and Charles Groden. I bought it reading other reviews thinking Charles Groden would be awesome. But to my surprise, this is one of the worst movies ever made. You may smile at one point, but beyond that, not worth a penny. Watching a wall is more entertaining. <laughs> so- <laughs> This whole bit we've got going is may have a very short life, but I'm still laughing today. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Amazon. You're delightful.
0: Audible.
1: Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations.
0: Ooh, this should be
1: fun. <laughs> uh-huh. We're starting with the big series, Robin Hood.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another?
1: Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, Well, I'd say uh,
0: Douglas Fairbanks and Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. They're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different
1: take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, Aren't they all original? No, not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman. Can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The
0: Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy,
1: Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace.
0: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible.
1: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content.
0: Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel
1: and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it.